You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. We're going to look at 2 Kings 23 this morning. A couple weeks ago, I shared from 2 Kings 22, uh, looking at one of the greatest revivals in the history of Israel. At this point in Israel's history, it's actually divided into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and and Judah in the south. Um, And so it's a time of great difficulty for the the people of God, for the nation, for for God's people, for God's nation, Israel. They're divided. They're in a time of great spiritual decline. We'll see this morning, idolatry is everywhere in Israel and Judah. They have given themselves over for centuries to foreign gods. And not just uh, subtly, but all out idolatry and idol worship um, in the most grotesque ways. And uh, on top of that, they're surrounded by foreign powers. Assyria is kind of the rising power of the day. Egypt is still a superpower. Babylon is kind of the declining power of the day. Um, And so you have these these superpowers surrounding Israel and Judah. And so it's it's a difficult, difficult time. And it's in those moments that that God breaks in and moves on hearts. And we saw last time in 2 Kings 22 that King Josiah, an eight-year-old boy, began to seek the Lord. It was when he was 16, he really turned his heart to begin to seek, seek God. And uh, then in his 20s, he, he really ramped it up all the more and, and began to bring great reform and great renewal and great revival in Judah. And it's a beautiful, beautiful story. We're going to continue that this morning in 2 Kings 23. And I, I want us to look at this passage and learn very, very practically how we can invite God to come near into our life, how we can live a life that welcomes Jesus. The other option is that we live a life that is very unwelcoming to the Lord. Those are the, the only two options. There's no middle ground in the kingdom of God. We like to play around with the idea that there's a middle ground. We can somehow waffle in the middle, but those are the two cut and dry, black and white choices. Either we're gonna welcome the Lord when he comes or he's gonna come and it is going to be for our own judgment. It's, it's going to be, we will reap what we have sown. Those are the only two options. Just an, another example of that is a passage I shared from a, a few weeks ago in Matthew 21, the story of when Jesus comes to the temple. So I said, Jesus is coming. He's going to come, and the question is whether we'll be welcoming him or whether we will live a life that's unwelcoming to the Lord. Jesus walked into the temple, and it was, through their actions, a very unwelcoming place to the person of Jesus. And he was offended. He was actually angered in in a holy way. There was this righteous indignation that rose up within, within Jesus at the sight that he saw. People making a buck off the name of Yahweh, exchanging things, doing business transactions in the courts of the Lord, and he began to turn tables. And... But there were others that were very welcoming to Jesus in Matthew 21, because what happens is the lame end up, a healing service breaks out. The lame be, begin to be brought to Jesus, and he heals the lame, and he, be, he begins to proclaim the kingdom of God. So that's the way it is. Either we're going to welcome the Lord or, rather, or we're going to live a life that's very unwelcoming to the Lord and it will be to our judgment. You can think of it like the analogy of fire. Either we can prepare the fire like you, like you would. You'd pr- provide the kindling. You would, you would kind of stack up the wood for good oxygen flow. 
or the fire of God's judgment will come. You can either prepare the, the, prepare the sacrifice or you can be burned up by the fire of God's judgment. Actually, the, uh, John the Baptist in Matthew chapter three, I know I'm quoting a lot of scripture to set this up, but I feel like it's important for the, um, the reality of what's at stake to be made very clear. Matthew chapter three, John the Baptist says, that there's one coming after me of whom his sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And he says, this one will come, he will come and he will baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire. It's really, really good news. It's actually really, really scary news, all packaged in one. And he says, this one, he'll have a winnowing fork in his hand and he'll separate the wheat from the chaff. You know, the, the wheat will be for eternal harvest. The chaff will be burned up. And as good Pentecostals, we know and we pray for the fire of God in our midst. But we do it humbly knowing that Acts chapter two, the fire of God fell upon the people of God because they were prepared. They had, they had prepared themselves over, over a matter of days and weeks, preparing for, for the fire of God to come. But at the same time, John the Baptist said, Holy Spirit and fire, because part of that is this judgment that will come, that will, it's the justice of God. It's actually part of the goodness of God. We don't want a world without consequences, without a sense of sowing and reaping. The, the character, the good character of God is seen in that principle of sowing and reaping. And we wouldn't want it any other way. It would be utter chaos and uh, we wouldn't survive without sowing and reaping. Consequences, um, cause and effect in the universe. I want us to look at how we can prepare ourselves in such a way that invites the Lord into our life so when he does come, when he does draw near, we're ready. This is gonna be good news for your soul. You know, if I was even more creative, I probably would have a, a, like an illustrated sermon today, illustrating how to build a fire. But my dad is a fire, has been a firefighter for 30 plus years and I made a promise to my father that I would never do a sermon illustration using fire. There's too many, too many bad horror stories my dad has told me over the years of pastors, preachers who've tried to do sermon illustrations with fire and they've gone awry. So I'm just gonna spare you that and spare, spare myself any uh, chastisement for my father. So um, you can just imagine us this morning preparing the elements for a fire, for the fire of God to come. We're preparing the sacrifice. God's gonna bring the fire. If we, if we neglect this, the fire will come, but we won't be prepared. Second Kings chapter 23, it says this, then the king sent and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. So this is truly a holy convocation. This is a gathering of all people, small and great, prophets and priests, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all of his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. The first thing that we can do to welcome the Lord 
into our life. The welcome the Lord to draw near is elevate God's word in our life. This is what King Josiah did. If you remember in 2 Kings 22, the book of the law was dusted off from the house of the Lord. It had gone neglected for, for generations. And the, the high priest Hilkiah had, had began to dive into it afresh and it rocked King Josiah. Here this treasure buried in the house of the Lord had been uncovered. It was the treasure of the revelation of who God is. And it rocked Josiah to the core. And so here in 2 Kings 23, Josiah rightly elevates God's word again amongst his people. He realized, oh, this is who we are. This is our national identity. The only reason we exist as a people is because of the revelation of God that we, that we found here in this book of the law. It's the only reason they are a people. The people of, of Judah you know, split off from the, the nation of Israel. It's the only reason they exist. So if you want God to be welcomed into your life, elevate God's word in your life. Magnify God's word in your life. Allow it to, its authority to increase in your life. Think of the, the humbling act that this was for the king, the supreme ruler amongst the people, to stand, it said he stood next to the pillar. The, the pillar was the place where kings were anointed. So the king stood by the pillar in front of all the people, small and great, and read himself, read the book of the law. And then he made a pledge to these people and said, I, as supreme king, supreme ruler, am submitting myself to a higher power. I'm submitting myself to a greater king. From this day forward, I'm gonna allow my heart to be submitted to this one that's been revealed to us. I'm gonna serve him with all my heart. I'm gonna serve him with all my soul. What a humbling act. Just think of it. All they had known in prior generations were, were kings that ruled with an iron fist and kings that, that kind of had their way, whatever their, their whims would, would, would have them pursue, they pursued. And here was a radical act of devotion and submission from young King Josiah. Just allow it to sink in, the, the humbling act. So when we elevate God's word, it's such an act of humility to say God is supreme in my life. I would say King jo the, the issue amongst the crisis of the day in Josiah's day is the exact opposite of the crisis of the day in our day. In Josiah's day, they had neglected God's word because it had sat dormant. It had been rejected for generations. So there, there was this sense of with brand new eyes, they were uncovering this not long neglected book. In our day, it's, it's kind of the opposite. The word of God has become so common that oftentimes we, we take it for granted. We do, we do the opposite. We say, oh, I've heard that, been there, done that. The, the word of God, we have all these resources coming our way, flooding, flooding at us to the point that it kind of goes in one year and out the other. In terms of it rocking us to our core, it rarely does that. Because we, we, stop, we, we fail to stop and allow it to pour over our soul. So my charge to you this morning is to elevate God's word in your life. Think of how God self-describes his revelation to us. He describes it as a sword, a double-edged sword. It's Hebrews chapter four, we talked about that a few months back. 
His revelation to us is like a, it's living and active and it's like a double-edged sword that can cut into our life. That's relevant to your Monday. It's relevant to your Tuesday. Allow it to pour over your heart, pour over your life, cut into your, into your soul. It's useful. In fact, um, that's what Paul tells Timothy, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for for teaching and training and correcting and training in righteousness. It's, it's relevant to our life if we'll submit our hearts to it. Jesus describes the revelation of God to humanity like food. You know, in Matthew chapter four, as he's being tested in the wilderness, he had Nathan for 40 days. The enemy comes to him and tries to tempt him with a a microwavable dinner. He says, you know, can you switch that stone into bread? You can do it if you have the power of God. And Jesus says, he quotes scripture and says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Elevate God's word in your, in your mind. Elevate God's word in your life. And when God comes near, you'll be ready for the fire of God that, that, that pours out upon a people. You'll be ready because you'll see him rightly. Your heart will be rightly positioned in submission to the Lord. Psalm 119 says that the word of the Lord is a light to our path, a lamp in our life. So you question what to do with your life. You question how to proceed, how to move forward. The word of God is meant to be that, that, that compass, that that guide map for our life, but how often do we, do we neglect it? We run to other things. Elevate God's word in your life. Are you guys tracking with us? Yeah. Everyone's kind of just um, staring blankly at me and uh, I'm trying to discern what to do with that. There is a proliferation of God's word that I'm thankful for in our generation, sincerely. I don't despise that in the least bit. I'm thankful for all the reading plans and resources and sincerely, but I'm just, I'm just warning us. The, the risk on that side of oversaturation with something is we take it for granted. It's the Laodicean problem. It's the, the problem in the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter three. We say, hey, we're rich, we've prospered, we have need of nothing. And Jesus says, in fact, you're poor, pitiable, blind, and naked. That's the risk on that side. So I'm, I'm glad we're not in Josiah's day, but I just, I just give us that warning. We need to, in a very humbling way, like um, submitted way to the Lord, elevate God's word in our life, elevate it in our hearts. And I just specifically wanna make a charge to men in this place. Men in the house, Elevate God's word in your households. Elevate God's word in your coming and your going. Like serve your family by saturating your family. Pour over your wife with the washing of the word, as, as uh, Ephesians tells us to do. Look at this picture in Deuteronomy chapter six. You don't have to turn there. Just, read, just listen to this, because this is part of the book of the law that was uncovered in King Josiah's day. It says in Deuteronomy chapter six, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words 
that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The word of God is meant to saturate our lives. If you could write them on the eyelids of our eyes, Moses says here, the word of the Lord is telling us to revere his word like that. Place it before us constantly. And so I charge you men to saturate your homes in the word of God. Don't preach at your family. Just immerse them constantly in the word of God. Read it at the dinner table. Read it in the living room. Read it as the book of Deuteronomy says, in your coming, you're going. When you're walking down the road, talk about the word of God. He's that good. And if we revere it, we would talk about it in our coming and our going. It's my charge to men. I, I've just had this faith as of late to call the husbands and fathers higher. I just feel like the Lord's restoring something. You know, revival has an impact on the home. And if it, if it doesn't, it's not true revival. It's not true renewal. It's not true. It's not a true awakening of the church if God also isn't infiltrating that institution that he began in the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, the institution of the home. And so all that's kind of a side thing. I just charge you men to elevate God's word in your homes. And so for all of us, elevate it in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. So this morning is meant to be very, very practical. I'm telling us to get ready for the fire of God and we do that by elevating God's word. And so yeah, that means today we can start. What I love about Josiah is he never allowed yesterday to be an excuse to continue in apathy. He always saw it as a grand invitation, a divine invitation. And so there's always kind of natural responses that we gravitate towards. Some of us, we get heaped with a whole lot of condemnation and shame when we uncover some truth like this. Oh, I haven't been elevating God's word. Okay, I, I hate that, that sense of conviction or you could, you could call it shame or condemnation or something, but that, that call to come higher. And so then you just avoid it and you kind of retreat back into what you've always known. This is an invitation. This is an invitation for radical change to come. The Lord is coming near and will he find a people that revere him as the king of all kings. I could go on and on and on, but we got a whole chapter to conquer here. So let's, let's look here at verse four. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the, of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. So Bethel was significant because that's where a lot of the worship to Canaanite gods began. So he was, he was making a statement to Judah that, that this act of repentance, of turning from idols, will turn us back from all the way, all the way back to where this started. All, we're all the way back to Bethel where this started. I'm putting these ashes there as a statement of faith before you all. 
that we are turning from that history, we're turning from that past of turning to idols, giving ourselves to, to idols that we've done for generations. Verse five, and he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and constellations and all the hosts of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah and the house of the Lord outside of Jerusalem to the, book, to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the house of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings for Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. So from one end of the nation to the other side of the nation. He did this. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the city gate of the city. Sorry, the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son and his daughter as an offering to Molech. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathanmelech, the chamberlain, who was in the precincts. And he burned the, char- the chariots of the sun with fire. One more, one more verse. And the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made on the two courts of the house of the Lord, he pulled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And he continues on. And I'll just stop there. Continues on for another eight, nine, ten verses. Casting down these idols, breaking down these idols. So the second thing we can do to welcome the Lord to draw near is turn away from idols. To turn away from pursuit of other things, of lesser loves. Of God's lowercase. That we put in this position in our life It's worthy of our affection when in reality they're not. Now, obviously, in Josiah's day, it was such a a gross, uh, blatant expression of idolatry that it's hard for us to even begin to register. It's hard for us to begin to grapple with what this means for our life. But I would caution us to, to set this aside too quickly. Idolatry is as common as humanity. Idolatry is as common in every age. It truly is. I just believe as, as we progress as, as, as uh, humanity and human history, idolatry just becomes a little more subtle. But there is this sense that our hearts gravitate towards other things away from the Lord. And so Josiah unapologetically tore down these blatant idols and made a statement of it. If there was any questioning regarding his zeal, regarding his, the covenant that he made before the people, he was putting that to rest in this campaign, which took the better part of a year. He spent an entire year of his reign as king simply cleansing Judah of idolatry and Samaria of idolatry, blatant idolatry that they'd given themselves to for generations, for centuries making the statement that our devotion is to Yahweh alone. It's to the Lord alone. So I encourage you to turn away from idols. 
Martin Luther said that whatever man loves, that is his God, for he carries it in his heart. So it's things that we carry in our heart that begin to take the place of the Lord in our life. Tozer said that idolatry is such an offense to God because it presents such a low view of God. Think of that. When we place the the idol of entertainment or materialism or money or pursuit of romance or whatever it is, we, we put there in that place. It's actually proposing a very, very low view of God. That the divine creator worthy of our affection is this silly created manufactured image or thing or pursuit. What an offense to the Lord. That's why he hates it so much. Because it's an attack on his character. It's an attack on how he has revealed himself to be as completely set apart. Shall have no graven image. There should be no, nothing that we put in that place of that we worship as God. Now I encourage you, I don't, I don't believe that we need to begin to um, look under every nook and cranny for some hidden idolatry in our life. I don't think that's super fruitful. The main emphasis of this is turning to the Lord. We're turning to something so beautiful and where, where this started was elevating the revelation of God in Josiah's life. Once you catch a glimpse of the beauty of the Lord, idolatry becomes quite obvious. Oh, I'm giving myself to entertainment. I'm giving myself to people's opinion of my life. And then we turn away from that. But I'm not saying you need to look under, you need to go finding idolatry in every shadow and every nook and cranny of your life. That leads down all sorts of depressing paths and, and honestly, legalism and things that don't lead to life. I'm talking about turning to the Lord, turning devotion to the Lord, saying, Lord, I love you more than anything. Capture my heart. And when then we go from that place to actual real life, idolatry becomes so obvious. Like, oh, wow, I've given myself to this hobby. <laughs> my heart is, is being given to this more than it is to the Lord. And Lord, I turn to you. <laughs> I'm turning completely to you. If you want to burn your fishing rods or whatever it is, burn your uh, hobbies, you could do that, but um, teach their own so the Lord can lead you in that. I'm just encouraging to turn from idols. And that, that involves more so an emphasis on what you're turning towards. It's turning towards the Lord. And that's what, that's what won over Josiah's heart. It was the revelation of God. The Lord is so good. The Lord is so beautiful. I want to give my all to him. And now Asherah and Ashtoreth and Molech and Komesh and Baal, all these other gods seem so silly. They seem so like such an offense. They seem so abominable that I would go to these lengths to get rid of them from my life because I've seen the Lord. The Lord is so beautiful. He's so good. I remember a a season of my life when I was um, late high school into college when I saw, and I've shared bits of this story before, but um, I saw a family in our church uh, just turned upside down by the Lord, by this, by really this, a turning from idols to the Lord. Their father, his name is Dennis, um, still a friend of our family, um, really got convicted that his love for the Lord had grown, grown cold. And he realized he was giving so much of his time late, late into the night to television that he made a statement before his family 
that I'm turning from this, I'm turning to the Lord. I want to devote my life to loving Jesus. And as a statement to his family, he put a blanket over the TV in their living room. He didn't uh, throw it in the dumpster at that point. He did later. But at that point, he just put a blanket over it. And it was a statement. It was a Josiah type of statement that the heart, the, the turning from idols begins in our hearts, but our actions do matter. We can't just allow it to stay in our hearts. Our actions matter and they're a testimony to people around us. That's what Josiah was doing by making such extravagant acts. He was making this testimony clear to everyone around him. That's what happened with Dennis. Dennis put a blanket over his TV in his household. For the next year or two, that, that blanket sat over that TV. And I began to see a radical transformation take place in his family. The fire of God came to that house. And their son specifically, who was the one I was closest with, his name is Isaiah. Isaiah, through junior high and into high school, he was the goofball of our youth group. I mean, just always bouncing off the walls, always looking for a quick laugh, but never intent on really serving the Lord. He pursued girls. He'd, he'd bounce in and out of our youth ministry, hard to track him down. Could always get a good, you could always get a good laugh from him, but... Um, but other than that, there was no real sense of devotion to Jesus until he saw this example from his dad. And honestly, the revelation of God to his father began to beam out of him and began to impact his family. And Isaiah himself had an encounter with the Lord in his bedroom that forever changed him. And in that same zeal that I saw in Dennis's eye, I began to see in his son's eye, Isaiah's eye. Every time you'd be around, I know Tony and Scott know Isaiah. Every time you'd see Isaiah, he'd have that flicker of love for the Lord in his eye. And oftentimes it would convict you. It'd be like, wow, I don't love Jesus as much as this guy. I want to love the Lord like him. And I began to see it in his sister, his sister Charity. And this transformation took place because of a, a radical turning from idolatry, turning from something that had become an idol in that household and specifically for that father. So I encourage you, if you want to be ready for the Lord to come near, if you want to live a life that welcomes the Lord to come near, the book of James says, draw near the Lord and he will draw near to you. If you want to live a life that's taking a step towards the Lord, turn from idols. Let's continue on. Let's bump down to verse 21. So you, you can read more of his destruction of idols and be encouraged by that. And, uh, but verse 21, so something else he does, a third thing, a third way in which he invites the Lord to visit the, the people of Judah. Verse 21, and the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover has been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. I believe this is the pinnacle of revival in Josiah's day. The day where the revelation ultimately of Jesus is revealed, is, is brought to bear upon God's people. Ultimately, God's plan for his people to bring about a savior. And that was foreshadowed in this Passover uh, festival, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover feast. So King Josiah 
in one more statement of radical devotion, of radical repentance, and ultimately phenomenal leadership, he uncovers this festival, the, 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 the Feast of Passover, which had been neglected, just to put this in perspective, it had been neglected for 600 years. So just imagine this institution of the people of God as a distinct people from, from the Canaanites and the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians. It had been neglected for 600 years. And King Josiah discovers it. And he realizes, wow, we have been living outside of the covering of the protection of the Lord. God is our defender. He is our deliverer. He is our protector. And we have been living outside of that protection. That's, that's why I'm talking about. Those are always the, that's always the, the only two options that we can live. Either we're going to live outside of God's protection, of which we should be fearful of. It's a terrifying place to be, or we'll live under the covering of the Lord. So the third way in which we can prepare for the Lord to come near, invite him to come near, is live under the covering of the blood of Jesus. Live under the covering of the blood. Live there. Constantly at rest and placing your faith and confidence only in the sufficiency of Christ in your life. You live there and there is not only peace for your soul, but protection. Protection for your life. And that's what Josiah uncovered. You can understand why that would be so revolutionary. Like why this is the moment in Judah's history that will be recalled for generations. Like, like everything is changing right now. The Passover feast is being discovered now as a people of God, we're going to live back under the promises and the covering of that covenant. That, that the Lord is our deliverer, that he is our protector. So the Passover was so significant because it was the, the festival that marked remembrance of the Lord delivering Israel out of Egypt. So out of slavery, praise God for that. We're set free by the power of God. And it was it was pronounced over Israel's identity through the sacrifice of a lamb and that blood of that lamb would be spread over the doorposts of the house and judgment would come to Egypt and those those doorposts that were not marked with the blood and for those marked with the blood they would be protected the sheer power of God pure power of God no other way to explain it that this blood would protect the people of God and that, that judgment would come to Egypt and households not under the blood and ultimately protection and deliverance would come to those living under the blood. That is where God is calling us to live as these humble, dependent ones who look like fools in the eyes of the world. You're gonna put your confidence in the blood of a savior. You're gonna put your confidence in the, the sacrifice of God, that's where you're going to put your confidence? And we say, yes, that, that is my life. The cross now is my life and my all. So our Passover as New Testament people is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is our Passover Lamb. That's not speculation. That's not... Um, 
That's not like a creative afterthought by the New Testament church. It's Jesus himself who pointed us to that reality. In Mark chapter 14, so the night of his betrayal, Jesus gives his disciples the instructions. And he says, go and prepare for Passover. I want to have a Passover feast with you all. Go and prepare for it. And they get the room ready. They get all the elements of the Passover meal together. And it's there at that Passover feast where Jesus draws a line in the sand, demarcating, uh, delineating the transfer into this new covenant age, this covenant age where he himself would be the Passover lamb. And so it was there at the Last Supper, eating the elements of the Passover feast, that Jesus says, take the bread, this is my body, eat of it. This is now your new life in the kingdom. Hey, take the, take the cup, drink of it. This is now the blood that washes over you. Drink of it, this is my blood. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So that, that now becomes our life. We, we do this, not just communion. We, this morning we'll, we'll take communion together as a statement in response to 2 Kings 23, but it's more than that. Communion or the Lord's Supper serves as a, like a tangible element of faith to stoke our sensory selves to come into a life of true faith. But, but the invitation here is for us to live continually under the covering of the blood of the Lamb. Live continually in this utter dependence to the lamb, the utter dependence to the blood of the lamb, the blood that was sacrificed for us. That is now our deliverance from sin and bondage, but it's also our protection, protection from the enemy. Remember, judgment came that night, the, the night of the Passover, the original night of Passover, Exodus 12, 13. There was that protection that the blood provides, and I want to live there. And when we do that, we welcome the Lord to come near. He comes near and he provides for the people of Israel this beautiful blessing of breakthrough of the supernatural that marked their life of ultimately divine destiny, their, their, their um, divine inheritance in the Lord came through what was started through the Passover. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.